After uh, covering enormous amounts of ground the last couple weeks, we're going to slow up just a bit for this week. Don't worry, next week we're, chat, we're covering five chapters, but that's Andy's job, so good luck, buddy. All right, um, Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16 is where we'll be in God's words. We continue our look at this great book of the Bible with God leading his people out of slavery into the promised land. Pick it up in verse 8. Here's what God's word says. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, and so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And so his hands were steady till the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. And then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This ends the reading of God's word. Praise be to God. All right, so what we see here in the last couple, and what we've seen in the last couple of weeks is the Lord is formulating and developing for himself a nation, a people. And if you're a nation, there's a few things that you need in order to survive. One of those is food, and one of those is water. These are some pretty basic necessary resources, and what, that's what God provided in chapters 15 and 16 and 17, early part of 17, for the people of Israel bread or this thing called manna that fell from the sky and provided for them sustenance each and every day, water in various places as they wandered in the wilderness and through the desert, God providing himself for the people of Israel. But like any other nation, not only do you need to simply be able to eat and feed your people and give them water and sustain them, a critical aspect of being a nation of a people group is can you defend yourself? And this is the first time since moving across the Red Sea, we see the Israelites are invaded or engaged in battle. A people called the Amalekites come along as they are wandering in the wilderness and attack the people of Israel. In fact, the Amalekites are actually cousins of Israel. They are the descendants of Esau, Jacob's older brother. Jacob became known as Israel, and his 12 sons have become the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it actually says we, this, we know from Deuteronomy, the account of this in Deuteronomy chapter 25, that the, Am- the Amalekites were going about this in a rather devious, almost terroristic sort of way. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 and 18, we get a sense of what they were doing to Israel. It says this, "'Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, and cut off your tail. Those who you were lagging behind, and he did not fear God. Now, this is not talking about the Israelites as if they were a dog cutting off their tail. What this means is what the Amalekites were doing was when you have nearly about a million people wandering through the desert, you get a little spread thin. You get spread out at various places. And there may be those who can't walk as quickly or those who are too young or too old to move quickly. And there are those who perhaps are stragglers. In other words, what the Amalekites are doing is they're coming and they're picking off the weakest 
and the most vulnerable of Israel. Perhaps they were killing them. Perhaps they were kidnapping them. Perhaps they were simply coming and robbing them of their possessions, taking advantage of their weakness, and then running off. Now understand that if you are actually Israel, this is a big deal issue. This is, this is real life. This is, this is, we, we breeze over these things in the biblical accounts. So they come and they attack the people of Israel and we kind of almost have a comedic or comical view of it. We tend to view scenes of the Bible almost kind of like watching a Jerry Bruckheimer film or like all of these new Marvel comic movies where we have these bizarre, these crazy scenes of massive and utter destruction and yet we have feel no remorse for the fact that when that alien shears off the side of a 46-story building in downtown New York and about 9,000 people die instantly, and we go, eh. And that's kind of how we often read the scriptures. When these people, when the Amalekites attack the people of Israel, there's actually a loss of life. There's a real imminent threat. You see, these issues are no less real than the issues and the attacks that you face in life, when it, when it feels like the values of being a Christian are under attack by a, with a, by a world around you, that when you are under, if you were to allegorize the, the, the wilderness wandering and spiritualize it for the Christian, understand that we are on this journey home to the promised land, and yet in the midst of that journey, we are what? Are we attacked? Absolutely. We are attacked by an evil dictator who once ruled this world and would long to have his power back, who once possessed you and comes and, and attacks you and tempts you with his testing. That we live in a world in which there is actually physical and spiritual and cultural attacks. It's no less real than what Israel is facing. And if you feel that, if you come to terms with it, if you have the eyes to see that you are a person who is under daily threat of terrorist activities both on the spiritual and the physical worlds, you are asking the question that Israel would be asking. How do we protect ourselves? How do we defend ourselves in the midst of coming under attack? If you look at the section of Exodus, it's about the development of this nation. And they have their food and they have their water. But now they have to figure out what is vital for a nation. Can we defend ourselves from those outside us? And so that is the answer we're going to look at this morning. We're asking that question we're actually going to be fairly, again, just as our reading, we're going to be fairly brief for King's Chapel. And by that means, if you're, if you're new here, what that means is we'll go for about 30 minutes, not 50 minutes. So we ask the question, how do we defend ourselves? And here's the, here's the answer from this text. We're going to see it in three parts. That we, the answer is how, how we defend ourselves, how do we protect ourselves, is often we fight, always we pray, and in all things we look to the Lord our banner. That is the answer of this text. How do we defend ourselves? How do we protect ourselves? Often we fight, always we pray, and in all things we look to the Lord, our banner. We're going to look at each of those this morning. First, sometimes or often we fight. Often God calls us to fight. If you look at the beginning of this text, they're attacked by the Amalekites, and God does not look at Moses and Joshua and say, okay, I'm just going to wipe them out for you. No, he looks at Joshua and he says, Joshua, raise up men and go and do battle. Now, this signals a change in the life of Israel. And it actually mimics a change that happens in your spiritual life. You see, at the Red Sea, the Israelites were not somebody. At the Red Sea, when God takes out Egypt and destroys the army of Egypt, Israel really takes no part in that battle. The Lord does it from beginning to end. 
God is the one who does the active. He's the one who fights for them. They're simply, their job is to run like chickens across the Red Sea and get out of Dodge as quickly as possible. They're not to turn and fight. God does it all for them. And yet what we see here is after God has delivered them from bondage, after God has brought them across the Red Sea into a new life of freedom, now he says, I am going to be with you and I'm going to empower you, but you will be the ones to fight. You will participate in this. And the same thing goes for us in our spiritual warfare. Before you became a believer, before you were set free from your bondage to sin, to temptation, before you were a Christian, you could do nothing to fight. And what God did in your justification, in your salvation, as he came, he said, I'm going to send my son who will die for your sins, who will defeat sin and defeat the devil for you, and you will be saved. But now, once you have been saved, now you get to pick up a sword and fight. As a part of your sanctification, as a part of this battle, you're going to be called to fight. The Israel's encounter with the Amalekites is a picture of the church engaging in spiritual warfare. The church does not physically fight our foes. For our battle, as it says, is not against flesh and blood, but against the world, against the longings of sin and the devil. He says this in Ephesians chapter 6. We actually quoted from it in that song, O Church Arise, this morning. It says this, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. This is a verse that is saying, as Christians... And we are not laissez-faire Christians. We are to stand up and fight when we experience temptation and testing. 1 Timothy 6.12 tells us to fight the good fight. This is an image that is used over and over again. Paul says he buffets his body. He makes himself ready for what is ahead. In fact, in our membership vows, to become a member of this church, one of the things you have to say is, I'm a sinner and I need the grace of God. That is the only way in which I'm saved is God's grace. But then having been saved, and we, on our third membership vow, it says this. We say, I resolve and promise to live as becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. That we're resolve. It's where we get resolution I'm going to resolve. It means I'm going to stand firm. I'm going to stick my feet in the ground. I'm going to draw a line in the sand. And I'm going to say, I will stand here. I will fight. For the Christian, not fighting is not an option. We are not spiritual pacifists. J.C. Ryle in his very well-known book, Holiness, talks about spiritual warfare. And he's got a great chapter in that book called The Fight. But he says this, He that would understand the nature of true holiness must know that the Christian is a man of war. If we would be holy, we must fight. A true Christian is one who is not, has not only peace of conscience, but also has war within. In other words, there's this dual identity going on. We are, be, we are both people of great peace, but we're also known for our warfare. That we will fight against sin. That we will fight against temptation. And understand, understand some things about this spiritual warfare. This warfare is not something you get to graduate from as a Christian. 
You, this is a warfare. If, uh, there's a story of a, of a guy who came to a pastor and said, I'm ready for the day in which I'm looking forward to the day in which I will not experience any more temptation and any more testing. And the pastor's response to him, so you want to be dead. Because that is when you will experience no more testing and no more temptation. Well, you know, notice here in this text, what does it say about how long Moses has to keep his hands up? How long will they fight? God says, I'm going to fight through you. And does that mean that immediately, they, suddenly all the Amalekites just drop dead? No. They fight all day until sundown. All day they have to fight until the sun goes down. The battle was not over until the sun went down. The battle of the Amalekites was not easy. It was not quick. And it wasn't over in less than a minute. And therefore, understand this about your spiritual warfare. The evil one is persistent bugger. And he's going to come after you again and again, and again, and again. And therefore, it involves, if you're going to fight, it's going to involve some determined opposition. In fact, it, you notice here in the, the course of it, when Moses' hands were up, they won. When his hands went down, they lost. There might be setbacks. You might fail. There might be real steps back. But it involves a constant taking up the sword a standing up again, even after you have fallen and persevering. And so what this looks like is that you fight. Now, yes, in a moment, we're going to look at prayer. And, but often, what God calls you into is he calls you into action. And prayer is not placed as a dichotomy to you taking significant and strong action against the temptations of the evil one and the challenges in life. This is not a, the Christian life is not a let go and let God theology. For example, if I were to illustrate it this way, if you, if you, someone you love is sick, do you pray for that person or do you take him to the doctor? The answer is both. The answer is you do both. You take them to the doctor and you pray like crazy, knowing that it is the Lord who uses physical, tangible, visible, earthly means, practical means to bring about his work in this world. And therefore, there are times when God will say, I'm going to do it all. Israelites, just watch while I take out the Egyptians. You go play your musical instruments and sing great songs about what I've done. And there will be other times in which he'll say, no, put down the musical instruments and you take up a sword and you get, you get ready to fight. Prayer and act activity are not incompatible ideas. My own father likes to say it this way, that we aren't let go and let God. Instead, we are trust God and get going. We are trust God and a get going sort of people. And so let me ask you this, what is your get going? What is your taking up a sword and what is your fighting? Some of you, that means you need to take up the practical sword of accountability and community and bringing, inviting others into the fight with you. Some of you, this means you, need, you simply need to begin by naming the enemy. Here is the Amalekites, but what is the temptation, the testing, the evil one is bringing into your life? Some of you, you might need to make some resolutions and promises and some goals. That is not antithetical to God's sanctification work in your life. You need to name the battle. Here is the battle. The battle is for my children. And I want to be a father who fights for my kids. And so here's what it looks like. That means I need to have devotions with my kids at least five days a week because I want to fill them with the Word of God. I, I'm going to do battle against this addictive behavior in my life. because So therefore, I'm going to do something. I'm going to get into an accountability group. I'm going to go to a group and where we can talk about these things and we can fight. 
Understand this, that when God has come like he does for Israel and sets them free from bondage in, in, in Egypt, so God has set you free from the bondage of sin and slavery, and he has set you free, not so you can sit back, but so you can fight. I love the book. I read this past year. It's a World War II book called the it was called Sons and Soldiers. It was a fun, interesting read, and it's the story of six young men, Jewish men who escaped from Nazi Germany, only to go back into Germany to fight for the United States Army. They had been set free to do what? To fight. And guess what? They were excited to fight. That you've been set free from enslavement to sin, and now you get to fight it. Your worst enemies. To take up a sword of God's word and fight. So God calls us into action. God calls us into action. But the most critical action we see in this account, not a dichotomy from other forms of action, not separate from it, but a part of it, but the most significant action we see in this account is prayer. Always we pray. Sometimes God gives us something to do, some ways to fight, but always we pray. First Thessalonians 5.17 says what about prayer? Pray without ceasing. That's a good word for always. In the stretching out of hands, we see an indication that what Moses is doing here is praying and worshiping the Lord. Prayer is not mentioned there, but by the visual expression of what Moses is doing. In Exodus chapter 9, for example, Pharaoh comes to, Israel, to Moses and says, Moses, please get rid of this particular plague. Plead with the Lord, he says. And Moses says this in Exodus 9, 29. As a response of Pharaoh asking him to plead before the Lord, he says, And as soon as I have gone out of the city, Pharaoh, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord's. In Psalm 141, verse 2, it says this, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. The lifting up of hands is a biblical act in form of worship. It is probably a cultural expression as well, but it is a biblical one that Christians can rightly and ought to take up in our worship and in our prayers. The kneeling before the Lord, the raising of hands, the lifting of your eyes to heaven, these are physical expressions of saying, God, you are the one to whom I look. You are the one to whom I trust. And so let me ask you this. So Moses is praying and worshiping the Lord up on the hill. Was Moses in the fight? You bet he was. This is why we call and use the term prayer warrior. This is who Moses was. The spiritual man recognizes that the physical things in their life, the difficulties and the sufferings and the challenges, whether they see in their marriage or their children or in their workplace or in their city, in their community, in their country, they look at those things and they see that there's a battle going on behind the battle. And they know it's a spiritual battle already, as we already read in Ephesians chapter 6. And they are men and women who will do battle on their knees. We may fight like Joshua, and God has specific ways in which God has called you into that. But it will be to no avail if we don't cry out to God like Moses. Cry out to him. And understand this, that what we see about the, the vast majority of prayer in the Scriptures is not simply talking about individual prayer. This is a corporate prayer gathering. Corporate prayer is a great thing. It's a needed thing. How many of you are able on your own to pray for more than like 10 minutes at a time? But I, I'll sit with people as elders. We can pray for an hour and it goes by like that. 
Because praying in a corporate environment is great. What do we see here in this text? Moses grows weary of having his hands up. And so what does he need? He needs brothers, Her and Aaron. Aaron is his brother, and Her most likely, uh, there's some historical accounts that Her was uh, Miriam, uh, Moses' sister's husband. And so these men come to walk alongside Moses, to help him. And this is who the body of Christ is to be. And we are a people who gather together to pray. Use your community groups to pray. Ed Welch says it this way in his book, talking about living the Christian community, in his book Side by Side, he said this, We all need help. That is simply part of being human. We need help for our souls, especially when going through hardships. We were not designed to go through hard things alone. We are all helpers. We all need help, and we are all helpers as well. And this is part of being, also part of being human. We are meant to walk side by side. We are an interdependent, interconnected body of weak people. Who in our weakness together go before the Lord and we all cry help. Have you ever tried to hold up your hands for very long? My goodness, you'll feel pretty weak. Every once in a while I go to the gym. And I go to these classes where they tell me what to do. And the, the, the muscle I most or I least like working out because I feel the most pitiful are the small shoulder muscles in which you have to do this thing where I'll take like a 10-pound weight in each arm, and you do this. I mean, you look really, I mean, then they make you do this. But I'll tell you what, when you extend your arms out, all those little muscles, you feel weak in a hurry. There's a place of weakness to hold your arms out. You're vulnerable, aren't you? You're open for attack. So he needs help. When that's who we are to be. This is who Christians are to be for one another. We see this over and over and over again. Jesus is always talking to his disciples about loving one another and caring for another and helping each other. In Luke 2, 22, 32, he says, Peter, go strengthen your brothers. In Acts 18, Paul traveled back. It says, in so many of Paul's accounts in his letters, he's like, I'm writing to strengthen you. I'm writing to help you. I long to be with you so that I can strengthen you and encourage you. This is what we are to be as Christians. To hold each other's arms up. We need each other. We are to pray for each other. But don't just go home and pray for them. Pray for them in their presence. Put your hands on people. On their heads and on their shoulders. And pray over them. This is what the early church does, right? The early church, we see some of the greatest expansion of mission work. I mean, the church goes from this tiny little group of people in this backwoods, ancient Near Eastern city called Jerusalem, and in the course of 30 to 40 years, explodes all over the Roman Empire. These are a people who are busy. They are active. They are doing great activity to push back the kingdom of darkness. They are people who are being faithful. They are being murdered and martyred and persecuted for their faith all through the book of Acts. And yet the gospel goes forth. This is an act of people. And yet what feels that activity? Every place where we see that they're under temptation and when they're under duress and when they're persecuted, what do God's people do? They get together and they pray. So they may bubble over with lots of activity, but what fuels all the activity is a church that loves to pray together. Alec Matir, who is a commentator on Exodus, put it this way. He said, our spiritual battles against the world, the flesh, and the devil are won and lost to the heavy artillery of prayer. This is our battle. And that is why the Apostle Paul, we read it earlier from Ephesians chapter 6, 
When he talks about the full armor of God, he actually begins and ends in verse 11 and 18 in actually referring to the fact that we are to be a people that we are to pray in the Spirit in all sorts of occasions. That prayer is the, the buffer around even our armor. Now, why does, why does our victory, why does our, our action, why does our activity depend on prayer? Why is prayer such an effective spiritual weapon? Why does it make the difference between victory, hands up, or defeat, hands down? Because prayer is an utter dependence on God. It is tapping into the one who actually has the strength to win the victory. Here's how the psalmist put it in Psalm 44. For not by their own sword did they win the land, speaking of the people of Israel, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. That's another term for Israel. Through you we push down our foes. Activity, but through the power of the Lord. Through your name we tread on those who rise up against us, for not in my bow do I trust, nor can man's sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes, and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Prayer is how we hold, take hold of the throne room of heaven, and get access to the nuclear weapon that is God's. Spurgeon put it this way, the muscles of omnipotence. Omnipotence is a 50-cent theological word for infinite power. The muscles of omnipotence are moved by a thin nerve called prayer, and you have access to it. The greatest, most powerful being in the whole universe, you get to cry out like a little child going to his presence and saying, God, I need you to zap that thing. I need you to take on that area of my life. And Jesus has won this right for us. He's won this right for you to go into the very presence of a powerful, omnipotent God. It says this in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest, as Jesus, who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then it says this, Therefore, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Hebrews 4 tells us that we can move with confidence, that we can twinge the nerve of the omnipotent God, because we have been invited into the very throne room of God because of the work of Jesus. And what do we see? Not only is that true, but Jesus is interceding for us, isn't he? Later on in, the very, in that same book in Hebrews, Moses is interceding for his people, and yet he gets tired, doesn't he? And the victory goes undulates, whether Moses is tired and weary or whether he's strong in his prayer. And yet what do we see with Jesus? In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, it says this about him. Consequently, he is able to save to the othermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. We have the true and better Moses. The Moses whose hands have never grown weary of doing this. And they have holes in them. Because his hands did this. How should we protect ourselves? Sometimes action. Against the evil one. Taking action against his temptation. Against the testing. Against the things that would come against us. But we always pray. We always pray. Because you have access to the, the presence of the omnipotent one. 
You have access to the one who is already interceding on your behalf. And lastly, that brings us to our third point. So that in all things, in all circumstances, whether you're in a prayer closet at home or you're doing battle in some particular and practical way, in all things, we look to the Lord, our banner. In verse 15, it says this, at the end of the battle, after they have defeated the Malachites, it says that Moses builds an altar and calls the name of the altar, Jehovah Nishi, the Lord is my banner. Now, banner is not a word that we necessarily use in our modern vernacular. It is a, a banner is a military standard. It is a piece of cloth bearing the army insignia and raised up on a pole. Kind of think of medieval armies going out to battle. And they, each of the various divisions and the various um, companies of the army have their own company insignia, their own battle. I was looking at various ones this week, right? Various banners. The, some of the most more famous ones are the 101st Airborne has a particular look. The Big Red One with a huge one, the 1st Army Division, the United States Army. These are banners. And what banners were meant for, for soldiers, particularly in a day and age where you didn't have night vision and you didn't have technology, but you had to be able to see where is my captain? Are we winning or are we losing? And in the midst of the battle, when you're caught up in all this action around you, you look up and go, where are my comrades? Where is my captain? Where's the rallying point? And the place of the banner was where you went. Soldiers would always look to the banner. It helped establish their identity. It helped them know who they were. On the battlefield, it helps, it helps them get their bearings. It gives them courage and hope that if you can see the banner still flying, it means the evil one has not prevailed. We see banner used actually in a number of places in the Old Testament. For example, Song of Solomon of all places. Everybody shudder. And he says this, You are beautiful as Tisra, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. There's hope, there's beauty, there's joy when you see your lover is what it's saying. And it's that, that kind of emotion when you see the banner of the Lord. Psalm 20 verse 5, may we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. So when Moses says the Lord is my banner, he is saying the Lord is my warrior king. The Lord is my captain who rides into battle. That Jesus is the king who will, in the midst of battle, in the midst of a world in which every person who held the standard for all of God's people, for all throughout the history of Israel, is they stumble and they fall, don't they? David took it up and he falls. Moses takes it up and he fails. They fail over and over and again, and Jesus rides in and takes up the banner on his war horse, and he says, I will carry forth the army of God's people, and I will win the battle. And so we can know that Jesus and his banner, he is our banner, actually is what it says. This word for banner is not just a reference to carrying the, of the battle flag, but if you actually look in Isaiah chapter 11, it says this. Isaiah writes of a banner that is to come. It's harder to see in the Hebrew, I'll have to translate it for you. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal. It's the same Hebrew word for banner. As a signal for the people's. And that day at the root of Jesse, there will be one who shall come, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. On him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal, again, a banner for the nations, and will, they will assemble 
assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And in Exodus 17, it says that the Lord is my banner. It doesn't say the Lord has a banner. The Lord is my banner. And Isaiah 11 is saying the root of Jesse is the banner to come. Now, who is the root of Jesse? That is David's grandfather, or David's father, and from the line of David and from the line of Jesse will come Jesus. Jesus, in other words, is our banner. Here's what this means. That Jesus is the king who is riding into the fray. He is the banner that is waving and flapping in the wind. He is the insignia of God's kingdom. He is the emblem of God's glory. And he comes and he stamps his flag in the midst of the battlefield and says, I am going nowhere. And I will be victorious over all forms of evil that try to come and take my people. And when he raises his banner, the banner of the salvation of God being raised for the whole world to see, and all peoples and all nations come to the banner of Christ on his cross where he defeats sin and Satan and death and all forms of temptation, he crushes these things and he stands. Jesus himself stands as our banner, as our flag calling us to gather, to assemble where he has been raised, speaking of our salvation that has been won and that is to come, where we can provide, find protection and care and victory. That's who Jesus is, our banner. And that's why we, as Christians, we put crosses up in our buildings and on, we wear them on our necklaces because the cross is our standard and Christ crucified on it because we rally to that point. We regroup at it. When you're tempted... With the addiction, with the, with the addictive behavior in your life, the thing that calls you like a siren's call that says, you can't resist this. You say, no, 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 I will look to my banner. He defeated it. He won it. When the evil one would seek to sift your children like wheat, you remember what Jesus says over Peter, I've prayed for you. So that the temptations of the evil one would not destroy your faith. And so you look to the banner of Christ Jesus who has said, I will be your protector. I will never leave you or forsake you. It's in the midst of the battle we look to the cross. So are you tempted from all sides? You feel like life is going to crush you, whether it be physical circumstances or spiritual circumstances. You look to Christ on the cross. God gives us the victory in him. And so here's the reality of it. For second generation Israel, remember we're going to the back to that over and over and over again. Second generation Israel is called to take up their mission, to move into the promised land, to take on the people of, 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 of Canaan, to take over the promised land. It's similar to us. That we are called as a people to take on this mission, to take forth the kingdom of God into this world. And some of you right now may be called into a place of darkness in which you want to throw in the towel because in those places of darkness, you find the evil one has a foothold. It may be your kid's heart. It may be in your neighborhood. It may be in some systemic injustice in the city or in this world. And you look at it and you say, how will the evil one be dislodged? Or you remember this, that you have a banner. And Jesus says this in Matthew. He said, the gates of hell will not prevail. Why is that? As Christians, we think, tend to think of the gates of hell coming after us. Gates aren't used as offensive weapons. We are attacking the gates of hell. And what he is saying there in that very text in Matthew chapter 16 is Jesus is saying the gates of hell are a cave to a mountain that's known as the God of death. And Jesus says, I'm going to go through death. And I'm going to carry the banner through death, and your job is to follow me. And so you're going to go into places of darkness. They're going to look like hell. But I'm going before you, 
and it gets hard, and it gets tough because the campus is full of people who hate God, perhaps, and because the evil one has a placehold there in various people's lives, and you say, no, 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 we're going to go there. We're going to go there. Because the one who brings life holds his banner, and he says, I will go there. See, this is not simply a defensive thing against the temptations of the evil one. It's also an offensive thing. So you're in the middle of the fight. Go back to the defensive, though. When the evil one whispers at you and tells you you can't win, you look up and you see the banner of cross who's already defeated all, of, all the sin in you that the evil one would say could never be forgiven, could never be done, could never be done away with. And so when the evil one comes to tempt you, you say, do your worst. Amalekites, you're attacking me where I'm weak. You do your worst. I have a king who fights for me, and I'll follow him in the battle. So you look to the banner that is Christ. And then if I could encourage you to memorize this. You know, it's called the sword. You should memorize some of it. Some, it has a few moves in there. My kids like ninjas. They have cool moves. That's what memorization is. Ninja moves for the Christian. Memorize this, 2 Timothy 4.18. When you are tempted, it says this, Paul is saying this, you know, one of the last words he says is he's facing death and imprisonment and persecution. He says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Some of you just need to, you just need to re- memorize that and repeat that all the time. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. You see, soon our warfare will be over and Satan will no longer trouble us. Our commander is Jesus Christ, will call us away from the battlefield and to the victor's crown, and then we will share in his absolute conquest of the evil one, and we will simply sing and rejoice over the fact that we got to fight. And we'll rejoice in the beauty of our banner. We get to worship him for all that he has done. And so this morning we come to look to a banner. A physical remembrance, a raising up to remind you the fact that he has won the victory. If you're an elder, someone who's serving the Lord's Supper, will you please come forward this morning as we're going to go to the Lord's table and encourage our hearts about the fact that God has won the victory. And we're going to transition to the table this way. In verse 14, verse 14, it ends in the end of the section of this that we read this morning of Exodus 17, said this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write of this victory, write of this account, as a memorial, because we forget God's victories, as a memorial in a book. And then later on he says, he gives this as a promise of what he's going to do to the Amalekites. I'm going to put an end to them, he says. This is merely the beginning of my battle against the Amalekites. Then he says this in verse 15, And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner. We sing a song, You hear it all the time. Come thou fount of every blessing. There's a line in come thou fount that most people don't understand. And even if it's been explained to you, you probably forget it. You think of the word, you think of Scrooge every time you sing it. It's the word Ebenezer. This line, it goes this way. Here I raise my Ebenezer. What in the world, what are we singing? Christmas carol? What is Ebenezer? What that is, it's an obscure reference to a stone of remembrance of the help of the Lord. 
from 1 Samuel 7, when God won a victory for the people of Israel. And that is what the Lord's Supper is. It is a stone of remembrance. It is a raising up of an Ebenezer and saying, he won the victory. He won the battle. That means I can go back in and fight tomorrow because the banner goes before me. And so we read and we sing the rest of Come Thou Found, and it goes this way. Here I raise my Ebenezer, my stone of remembrance of what he has done. Here by thy great help I've come. This, how I've gotten here to this point is because of them, and I hope by his good pleasure safely to arrive at home. How do you get past the Malachites and get to the promised land? You have one who fights for you. So you get up and you fight as well and you pray like crazy because the banner goes before you. Will you remember it this morning? Jesus took bread. On the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'm going to pray over this. And we're going to take this together. Remember what God has done for you. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have set aside, <laughs> you take inanimate objects like rocks and say, pile these up and remember what I've done for you. And you take living bread, things like yeast and bread, and you say, remember what I've done for you. Tangible references so that we might remember your great victories. And so gracious God, we set aside this bread and we set aside this cup that reminds us of the fact that on the battlefield there was real bloodshed. That it was not a fake battle. That your son really took on flesh. That the spiritual world and the physical world collided and came together in such a way that your son was put to death so that we might have real victory that is both spiritual and physical, that we can enjoy victory in our physical glorified bodies one day for all of eternity. And that we'll enjoy you for all of eternity. We thank you for the one who has won the victory. We come to remember the Lamb, the cross, the ascended Lord. That is our banner. Would you encourage us? Encourage those this morning who are racked with temptation and testing. And they feel overwhelmed and they feel like they're broken down. And frankly, Lord, perhaps they have, their hands have fallen and they have failed. And there's been real loss. Would you encourage them? Jesus has entered the field. The king has come on his war horse. He's laying down his life for us. I'm going to give these men and women the courage to take up the battle that you have given them to face this week. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.